Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hallo und herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Welcome new listeners, welcome old listeners. We are back with our penultimate series of episodes on Bleak House and I'm super excited to share the ending of the novel with you next week, next Bleak House week. And this is, like I said, the penultimate. We're going over serials 13 through 16 today and then we'll finish off the novel and the series with serials 17 through 20 in our next Bleak House week, which is definitely soon. I am endeavoring to get the Bleak House stuff wrapped up, and as you know, it is a lot of prep work for us behind the scenes, so thank you for your patience with that. And with how long this series has drawn out, honestly, it's become kind of like a like a child of the David Foster Wallace series, where we really tackle a huge book every year, so I'm grateful for you all following along with me these many weeks and months as we've been reading Bleak House. Let's start with Serial 13, Chapter 39, Attorney and Client. So we get this aerial view, and as we know by now in Bleak House, Dickens loves these aerial views. The whole novel starts off with one, and we're getting one right now with Voles which his name is spelled V-Holes and I can't get out out of my head somehow. So (laughs) we've got Voles and Voles is a lawyer. He is Richard's friend. We met him at the end of Serial 12, so we didn't meet him too long ago. And he's in his office in London in this district where the Court of Chancery is really prevailing in London. The office is described as being very close and smelling of sheep and dust and it's dark and kind of dingy. Richard Carstone, who is Ada and Esther and cousin John, Jarndyce's beloved cousin, Richard, that Richard, is Vols's client. Apparently he's kind of abandoned the Kangi and Carboy pursuit in favor of Vols and keeping essentially the news up on the case up to date with Vols. And he, Vols that is, is really as steadfast about not only the case and Richard's chances in it, but also being paid for his work as he's continuing on the case as Richard is consistent in his ever-changing careers. I have a quote from page 523 of the novel. Quote, Mr. Voles, if any man had told me when I first went to John Jarndyce's house that he was anything but the disinterested friend he seemed, that he was what he had gradually turned out to be, I could have found no words strong enough to repel the slander. I could not have defended him too ardently. So little did I know of the world. Whereas now I do declare to you that he becomes to me the embodiment of the suit, that, in place of its being an abstraction, it is John Darndus, that the more I suffer, the more indignant I am with him, that every new delay and every new disappointment is only a new injury from John Jarndyce's hand, unquote. 
This is Richard, of course, talking in Mr. Bowles' office. They're kind of having a meeting about the case and the progression of it, so to speak. <laughs> if there really is any progression of it, that is. And what I found enlightening about this quote is that Richard is conflating the case's persona and, as we know by now, the case is really blown up into a persona of its own, right? That's what this book is all about. It's about conflating the court of chancery to the extent that it affects every single character, every single location and action and motivation in the novel. And I think that's what's so brilliant about it is it's it's a simple kernel, right, of truth that <laughs> that sometimes, and at least in Dickens's era, the law could be overwrought and ridiculous and overstrung and he's making a facsimile of it here with everything in this very dense complex novel so this recognition on richard's end that he conflates john jarndyce the man with jarndyce and jarndyce the court case is kind of a significant bringing together of a lot of those themes and also a recognition by one of the characters so heavily involved in the case that the case is really a character in itself in a lot of ways. So it's clear to me at this point that Voles is swindling Richard to a certain extent. I mean, he's young, he's naive, he's completely obsessed with Jarndyce and Jarndyce, and Voles is stringing him along. He's getting paid somewhat. Richard is very poor at this point. He's a soldier. He's, we'll see how well he's doing at that in a minute. Um, and it's it strikes me as odd, and I really don't like Voles as a character. I think there's a lot of characterization that goes against him, and he's like a lot of the other characters I think of. Volumnia Deadlock, for example, he's just so dramatic and he exacerbates every feeling and his obligations for uh, the different people he's supporting, his daughters and his father. So it's, Vols is a hard case for me and I would love to know what you all think about Vols and about uh, your opinions of him, first of all, and how Dickens draws him here. Is, is he really drawn as someone that distasteful or am I reading too much into it and connecting him with characters too readily and too easily? So there's a transition scene that I find very interesting in this chapter. It's kind of unique in the book in some respects. There's a couple other scenes earlier on that mimic this uh, style, but the transition is that as Richard Carstone leaves Vols' office in the district right of London. He's watched by Guppy and Tony, who as we know are employees of Kengi and Carboy, the other main lawyers of the Jarges and Jarges case. Um, we learn from them and their conversation, that's the transition, we move from Richard's movement into their conversation in the alleyway as they see him. It's very cinematic. Um, we learn from Guppy and Tony that Smallweed, another employee slash assistant at the office, has left Kengi and Carboys to work with his grandfather, Smallweed, and he's the one with the chair who comes in to Crook's estate and takes it over essentially after Crook spontaneously combusts. So 
Smallweed has his hands full, it seems like, and it seems like a very calculated move on his end. I'm really interested to see as the book progresses what goes on with him because we don't really get that much from him in these particular serials. So Guppy and Tony go to Crooks. It's basically on lockdown, as we know, because Crook spontaneously combusted, and we find out that Mrs. Smallweed, the grandmother, is a is a relation to Crook, so she kind of has rights to the property now that he's deceased. The Smallweeds are there in Crook's establishment cleaning everything out, and there's just tons of junk everywhere, as we know. It's kind of like a curio shop, but with a bunch of junk, <laughs> and there's kind of a mysterious undertone of like what are they finding what are they what are they uncovering in this shop and i again that's another thing i really want to know more about as the book progresses Tolkienhorn is there in kind of the shadows honestly as he is seemingly everywhere he's kind of a ubiquitous character at this point and that's very deliberately done trust me uh Tolkienhorn acknowledges in a really interesting remark that Guppy has, he knows that Guppy has been dealing with Lady Deadlock in some respect, probably having to do with her past slash her dirty secret. So it's interesting to me that Tolkienhorn almost in his little ubiquitous way knows the whereabouts and movements of all these characters. He kind of has this omniscience that I find very interesting at this point, considering what happens in a few chapters. Chapter 40, National and Domestic. So there's a bunch of politics talk in this chapter, which I'm not going to go over in detail. You all can read it if you would like. Um, essentially, Mrs. Rounswell is opening Chesney Wald for a visit from the Deadlocks and company. So Lady Deadlock at this point is said to not be doing well. She's very removed, she's very taciturn, keeps to her rooms, etc. Uh, and as they are coming, there's lots of rumors from this omniscient narrative party about the deadlocks and, of course, how Lady Deadlock is doing, the center of their attentions. So the deadlocks, they both come with their family, with, you know, the politicians in the family <laughs> and other politicians in tow. Um, at this gathering, so imagine this, they're all in the drawing room, it's getting late, it's after dinner, there's a raging fire, we'll put the fire there, sure, and there's a group of individuals talking politics, talking family, talking uh, together, and Mr. Rounswell, the housekeeper's son, is told in this talk to be going personally against the deadlock political stance. And seemingly, of course, because of the Rosa issue, Mr. Rouncewell's son fell in love with Rosa, who is sort of a lady's maid to Lady Deadlock, and Mr. Rouncewell proposed in the last section to take Rosa away and educate her so that she could marry his son. Lady Deadlock considers, considers this proposition is kind of made out to be a personal offense to her, and so now he's kind of going <laughs> continuously in these personal offenses. So we've got this kind of scandalous story that they're telling in the drawing room slash library area at the dark, and then Tolkienhorn, who's there, starts telling a quote-unquote general story, and it's dark by this point, and they don't have lights on, they send the 
Mercury's away with the lights, in fact. And Lady Deadlock is there in the shadows, and he tells Lady Deadlock's exact story. Her exact dirty secret as a general story. So we know at this point that he knows everything and that essentially Lady Deadlock is at his mercy. Chapter 41 in Mr. Tolkinghorn's room. So Tolkinghorn, after he tells this scandalous story in the dark with all the people, goes up to his room at Chesney Walls. As we know, he's a frequent visitor, so he has kind of his own part of the house that he frequents. Lady Deadlock meets him there. Lady Deadlock is kind of in a fit. She's ready to flee. She's ready to just go immediately. She's like, expose me now and I will go. She, in my mind, is looking for the relief of exposure. I think back to the scene with her and Esther, where she's telling Esther, I'm your mother, but no one can ever know. And this is a secret that you and I have to terribly bear together. And the weight of that moment, you can really feel what Lady Deadlock has been holding all this time. And she's such a formidable woman and a formidable character. And the weight of this, you can tell, is really starting to affect her. So she is ready for the relief of exposure. She's ready to leave everything she's known behind in order to feel this relief from the tension. Tolkinghorn, in turn, though, asks Lady Deadlock to carry on as she has and to wait, essentially, on, not on his command, but somewhat, yes. And Tolkienhorn says in return for her continuing to leave her normal, her, lead her normal life, he will remain quiet. So she agrees and leaves. Chapter 42 in Mr. Tolkienhorn's Chambers so Tolkienhorn, he's going home that night actually, and he has wine on his mind, as usual. <laughs> and he goes home, he runs into Snagsby on the way. Snagsby says that Mademoiselle Hortense, who was Lady Deadlock's old lady's maid, has been basically harassing him. She's been coming by all the time saying, I need to talk to Tolkienhorn, you need to get me into him. Um, Tolkienhorn tells Snagsby that's fine have Mademoiselle Hortense call on him. I'm sure he understands the strain that that puts on his relationship, that is Mr. Snagsby's relationship with his wife. Um, Mademoiselle Hortense comes directly that night, soon after seemingly, uh, just after actually Tolkienhorn gets the wine out. She declares this intense hatred for Lady Deadlock. And she demands of Tolkienhorn that he replace her in a new home with a new lady, for example, or that she be employed to hunt down Lady Deadlock and hunt down her secrets and expose her and ruin her somehow. Tolkienhorn, in turn, threatens jail if she comes again back to his house. And there's this very, like, to me, it's fascinating, but there's this huge lack of compassion on his end. And I've been thinking quite a bit recently about what Tolkienhorn is and what he stands for. And is Tolkienhorn, as, as we've discussed before, 
all the characters in this novel are the extreme versions of themselves. And I think this is something that Dickens does in general, um, something that definitely he got from his early, more, earlier humor writings. Um, I think of Martin Chuzzlewit, for example. Um, there's definitely kind of a slapstick kind of quality to a lot of these characters, even though this is more so of a drama, of course, than Martin Chuzzlewit, for example, or his other earlier um, novels. But there's just this symbolism to Tolkien Horn. Like, Tolkien Horn isn't a character, but a symbol. Not a character, but the narrator somehow. Um, that I just find fascinating. I think this lack of compassion towards Mademoiselle Hortense is a big cue in to that kind of messaging for this character. And it's a very tense scene, I will say. In an otherwise, I don't want to say otherwise calm book, but it's a very tumultuous book, a very tumultuous plot, but it's one of those scenes that's very dynamic and it's kind of a firecracker scene because Mademoiselle Hortense is at her wit's end, so to speak, and I found that this scene really stuck out to me because of the foiling that's going on between this dynamic, fiery Mademoiselle Hortense and this stoic, quote-unquote, reasonable Tolkien horn. Serial 14, Chapter 43, Esther's Narrative. So, Esther, we're back. Esther is being eaten alive by Lady Deadlock's secret. She's just being torn apart at the seams by it. And that's the state of mind that we enter on the serial in. So, to me, a lot of the development in Esther's narrative, and Esther's character at this point, is really drawing the picture that Esther, even though she's so good and she's so moral and she's so just excellent all around, she is an unreliable narrator at the end of the day. And this narrow-mindedness almost of, you know, her looks after her illness being ruined by the scarring and her mother's secret and being mistress of Bleak House all of those things are eating alive at her, and they necessarily influence and affect her narration. So it's tricky in books like this where it's a split narration. We have the omniscient, which seemingly is also kind of flawed in some ways, actually. And then we've got Esther's narration, uh, which is definitely uh, influenced by bias, for example. So we meet Richard, and he is evidently continuing after the Chancery suit, which we kind of know, but now we know it from Esther's point of view as well, and Esther sees Skimpole as a really bad example of an encourager for Richard at this point, so Ada and John Jarndyce and Esther visit Skimpole in London at his little house, really a retreat for him, I suppose, to encourage him not to keep entertaining Richard's fantasies about this case. And we get to meet Skimple's daughters. He has three daughters, the comedy daughter, the beauty daughter, and the sentiment daughter. They're all brought down as well as Skimple's wife, who is disabled. And the four, that is Skimple plus the other three, including Ada, John Jarndyce, and Esther, go back to Bleak House 
Sir Leicester Dadlock ends up visiting shortly after they get back. It's quite late, so it's kind of a surprise, unexpected visit. And Sir Leicester Dadlock apologizes for the less than warm welcome that Skimple had at Chesney Wall last time they were there. Um, Boythorn, the neighbor, of course, has is a friend of John Darnus's. They've stayed there several times. Esther stayed there when she met up with Lady Dedlock when she told her that she was her mother, etc., etc. Um, and Sir Leicester Dedlock essentially says, you know, my neighbor is in a class of his own. We shouldn't be imposing our treatment of him onto you. And he apologizes for that. So it's it's a it's a strange scene, honestly, and I'm not sure the utility of it other than to make the book have more coinciding plot lines. You all can let me know about that. I'm really interested in your thoughts. Lady Dedlock's sister, we find out at the end of this chapter, was married to Boythorn. The plot thickens. So Lady Dedlock's sister, i.e. Esther's aunt, her, the person who served as her mother almost her whole adolescence, um, the aunt left Boythorn mysteriously, and Esther knows, of course, that it was to raise her. So Esther eventually does tell John Jarndyce at the end of this chapter, she starts to tell him that Lady Dedlock is her mother and the whole story and how it's been unraveled to her. Chapter 44, The Letter and the Answer So Esther finishes telling John, John Jarndyce her story about Lady Dedlock, about her whole upbringing, how the pieces are starting to really come together, and they discuss potential threats to the situation, to revealing the secret, etc. And they bring up Guppy and Mademoiselle Hortense. Guppy, of course, was acting very strangely at the end of that whole meeting, tete-a-tete, with Esther. The last time we saw him with Esther in this narration, so (laughs) that's kind of a question on their end. And then Mademoiselle Hortense, of course, her bizarre behavior when they saw her leaving in the rain after Lady Dedlock uh, was there. So there's a few potential hitches, but What's interesting to me is that they're completely un- they're not unfounded, but they're completely off in terms of who the actual threats are. Of course, Tolkien Horn is a big threat at this point, for example. So John, Cousin John, as they're discussing this, gets a strange look, and he says, Esther, I will write you a letter, and you are to send for it when you are sure that your opinion of me will never change, no matter what. And so Esther does, she sends for the letter later that week, and the letter has, is essentially a letter of compliments to her, and it proposes marriage. It proposes that Esther become the mistress of Bleak House. So at this point, it becomes shockingly clear how far Esther's insecurities about her smallpox scarring have been blocking her from having a decent view of herself and having a view of herself that is unbounded. And though, Esther does say yes to being Mistress of Bleak House. And there's kind of a romantic scene at the end of this chapter. And when I went back and reread it after something happens, uh, it wasn't as romantic as I thought it was the first time. But 
it's kind of a couple sentences where she says yes and she kisses John Jarndyce and it's very serene and cute but then right afterwards they go back to what exactly their relationship was before exactly how they were carrying on before they don't tell Ada for example for a long time so there's a lot of really interesting fine print in this last scene that I would recommend that you go and re-look at, especially as we get farther on in the novel. Chapter 45, In Trust. So Mr. Voles, the lawyer, visits Bleak House and he tells John Jarndyce and Esther of Richard Carstone's dire financial situation. He's one of those people who has his interests so closely bound to him that he will spill any information and any details to anyone in order to get what he needs, which is, of course, support, uh, financial support from Richard, which Richard is not offering at this point. Esther and Charlie go to Richard's station in the army and to visit him, essentially, and figure out what's going on with him. And they figure out that Richard is done soldiering. He's essentially been excused, but sort of informally. It's not like he's been disgraced necessarily, but hes it's a mutual understanding that he's not going to be a soldier for much longer. And Esther, as she's coming back to the inn after visiting Richard, runs into none other than Alan Woodcourt <laughs> and her her former like I almost want to call him a beau of sorts he did give her flowers once <laughs> so yeah her former love interest and Woodcourt ends up sp spending the day with Esther and Charlie and Esther has an interesting observation of his reaction to her scarring she thinks that he pities her looks very much I'm not sure she's reading that right, to be honest, and even after reading this couple, these couple of serials, I'm not sure. And at the end of their time together, Woodcourt ends up promising Esther to be a friend to Richard, which is super compassionate. It shows definitely his character, um, whose overwhelming trait is kindness, just selflessness and kindness. Chapter 46 stop him. So on page 589 there's this picture of Tom all alone and I don't really comment on the pictures very much anymore. This is something that I would have focused on for sure a year or two ago during December Dickens. I really did like to look at the pictures especially as I was reading the Kindle books and I have the physical books now. Um, and you know I, again, I don't often comment on them, but the picture of Tom all alone in particular really struck me just because it's it's almost a, it's a place of mythical proportions in this novel, and I think it's a really interesting and thought-provoking way to engage with the text is to look at these images and kind of think, well, what fits here and what doesn't with the narrative, for example, or what did I see in the narrative that's not in the picture, or maybe there's stuff added in the picture that I didn't see or didn't catch. Um, so it's, of course, very interpretive to be looking at a picture, but I find it, again, to be a very valuable practice if you are going through these books, uh, like me, at a more leisure, uh, leisurely pace than you might otherwise. Um, it definitely, pictures definitely help you get 
some cues and it ties you in very well to the text. I found the beginning of this chapter to be actually a bit more difficult to read than a lot of the rest of the book, um, and it starts with a personification of Tom all alone's. Um, so you know, uses first person or sorry, third person pronouns for Tom all alone's, which is a place, of course. So referring to Tom all alone's as he, for example, and him. So it's interesting to me because. Tom All Alone's is the worst of Chancery. Tom All Alone's is the dark side of Chancery. It's what happens when things go wrong and they're neglected. It's really a personification of the neglect and the outruggedness of the entire affair of not only Chancery itself, but the Chancery suit. On page 590, there's a quote, quote, Verily, what with tainting, plundering, and spoiling, Tom has his revenge, unquote. So, of course, this is the literal personification of Tom all alone's. But yeah, look at this word choice. Tainting, plundering, and spoiling. Tom has his revenge. That's not a quote for sissies, <laughs> you know? That's a really serious, really specific picture of what Tom All Alone's represents and what it does in this part of London. And who do we have in the middle of this desolate place but Alan Woodcourt, walking around in the middle of the night near dawn in Tom All Alone's. And he runs into Jenny, who's the brickmaker's wife, the one whose uh, infant baby died, unfortunately. She has a cut, a gash on her forehead from a domestic violence incident and Alan treats her there and as he's treating her and talking with her they both see and catch Joe who kind of appears and then they say stop Joe what where have you been all that um and Joe is not doing well we can see from first glance from Alan Woodcourt and Jenny and Joe just says he's sorry for Esther. He's so, he feels so much guilt over that. And he says someone took him from Bleak House. He didn't run away from Bleak House. He was taken. Serial 15, Chapter 47, Joe's Will. Alright, so this is a really important section for people who have been reading the book slowly and maybe are not taking notes, you know, for me, I'm taking notes. So I take a lot more, I pay a lot more attention to minor plot points than a, someone or me if I was to read the book just for my own pleasure. So this is an important chapter because it reviews all of the major plot points up until this point. I essentially from when Woodcourt leaves to now, which was very early on in the book, to now, very late on in the book, and it, there's a review because we need to catch Woodcourt up to what's happening at Chancery. And again, this is just a great opportunity for those of you reading to catch up yourselves and refresh a little bit about what's been going on. Uh, so I would recommend looking at that section again. It's the beginning of chapter 47, Joe's Will. So Woodcourt and Joe go eat and they go... Essentially, they're trying to find a good place to put Joe where he's not constantly stressed and so, so sick. 
So they go to Crooks to try to find Miss Flight, who of course would be help, uh, of help to them. And they find out from Smallweed, the daughter, that Miss Flight is now at Mrs. Blinder's, where essentially Charlie and Coven's is and his other two kids were. And all three of them, Miss Flight, Woodcourt, and Joe, go to see George at the shooting gallery. More plot points are intersecting. It's a very wonderful feeling. So at the shooting gallery, they're talking to George about essentially putting Joe up while he gets back on his feet and gets healthy. And we find out that Bucket, the detective, has taken Joe out of Bleak House. And I find that to be a very interesting plot point and something that we're definitely going to have to file away for later. So, George takes Joe in, of course, because he's very nice. Esther and John Jarndyce and Snagsby all visit Joe, paying him respects and condolences and all that, um, and well wishes. Joe, when Snagsby visits, says, I want really big letters on my grave, saying that I'm sorry for the harm that I caused and the damage that I caused. And at the end of this chapter, his condition worsens. Chapter 48 Closing in. So Lady Deadlock decides, after all, to send Rosa to Mr. Rouncewell and his son, and she's going to be essentially educated by him and loved by his son. She will marry his son and have prospects there. Tolkienhorn is there during that whole affair, with Mr. Rouncewell coming and taking Rosa away, which is very emotional for Rosa. She's devastated that she has to leave Lady Deadlock. And Tolkienhorn later, in private, says that he disapproves of this action that Lady Deadlock is taking. Uh, she's really not as she was before, for example. Tolkienhorn then decides to nullify their agreement because she's not as she was before. And he is now at liberty to tell her dirty secret that she had Esther out of wedlock with some mysterious man who turned out to be Hodden slash Nemo anytime. So she's really at his mercy at this point. And there's this interesting section. I think one of my favorites in the book, actually, and I didn't really pay attention to what was going on the first time. I really had to go back and look at it. But... It's Tolkienhorn going about his night as he walks back to, or travels back to uh, London and his place in London, and Lady Deadlock's night as she also prepares for bed and walks and all of that. So it's this, it's a couple paragraphs about Tolkienhorn and then back to Lady Deadlock and then back to Tolkienhorn. It's this back and forth in kind of a, an interesting memoriam almost of of these overlaying scenes of, you know, that this is happening with Lady Deadlock at the same time as this is happening with Tolkienhorn. And, and again, it's very cinematic, this kind of writing from Dickens. So Tolkienhorn gets home. He's just got out his bottle of wine from his cellar, as per usual. He's got like two or three keys <laughs> that you have to find in order to find the key to the cellar. Um, and he's shot through the heart in his office and he dies and 
on pages 622 to 24, um, that's another great place to review if you want to go back. It's this pacing of the final sequence of this scene. And it's a really fascinating, well-paced section that's definitely worth some time going over. Chapter 49, Dutiful Friendship. All right, so we are in another world almost entirely after this dramatic death from Dolgenhorn. We are at the Bagnet's house, friends of George. Uh, Mr. Bagnet was a soldier. He's now a bassoonist. Mrs. Bagnet, Bagnet's wife, it's her birthday. So Mr. Bagnet does essentially a treacherous thing, <laughs> which is he goes and buys a couple of fowls. He does housework and cooking for the day. And Mrs. Bagnet is kind of stressed the whole time because he's really making a blundering mess of the whole affair. And she knows she's going to have to fix it the next day, but she lets him do it. She lets him quote unquote treat her. So it's kind of a touching scene where all the intentions, the intentions of these characters, uh, they're so well intentioned. <laughs> and they know each other and love each other so much that they don't reveal kind of the how inconvenient <laughs> some of the outcomes of these good intentions are. So after they have dinner, they're sitting around the fire and Mr. Bagnet's about to have his pipe, Mr. George comes in and he's low in spirits because Joe has passed away. And there's this fascinating scene at the end of chapter 47 of Alan Woodcourt starting to say the Lord's Prayer with Joe. And we're going to go over that in the episode on Thursday as well. So he's low in spirits, Mr. George's, because Joe's passed away. It's been a kind of tumultuous week for Mr. George. And Mr. Bucket arrives at the Bagnet residence and he knows George, but not the Bagnets, which struck me as odd to be honest and he's very very fond of children he's in my eyes a kind of creepy towards the children <laughs> to again just being honest that's my opinion um and it's this weird imposition where he's very genial very friendly to the magnets buys a secondhand violoncello from them even and after they leave the gathering bucket arrests george for Tolkienhorn's murder. Serial 16, Chapter 50, Esther's Narrative. So Caddy has a baby! Caddy Jellybee! She has a baby, and the baby is very sickly and weak, but the baby's named Esther, after Esther, of course. And Caddy herself is also unfortunately ill, so Esther goes to London for several weeks, eight to nine weeks, it says, to tend to her. They end up celebrating Ada's birthday, and Esther tells her on that day of her engagement to John Jarndyce and being eventually the mistress of Bleak House. As they're spending all this time in London, there's a lot of visitors to the Jellybee Turvy Drops, um, Mr. Turvydrop, of course, the figure of deportment. Mr. and Mrs. Jellybee both visit separately. And Alan Woodcourt is a frequent visitor as well. Esther closely 
notices a change in Ada that she's not so open as she was before. She hides things from Esther. This is quite distressing to Esther, of course. Chapter 51, Enlightened. So Woodcourt visits Richard Carstone at the beginning of this chapter, and in the process of trying to visit Richard, he gets held up by Voles and essentially told about Richard's entire financial situation, as per Voles' previous visit to Bleak House. Esther and Ada, after this visit, see Richard as well. And there is a quote on page 651 that I want to read. Quote, His hopefulness had long been more painful to me, Esther, than his despondency. It was so unlike hopefulness, it had something so fierce in its determination to be it, was so hungry and eager, yet so conscious of being forced and unsustainable, that it had long touched me to the heart. But the commentary upon it now, indelibly written in his handsome face, made it far more distressing than it used to be. I say indelibly, for I felt persuaded that if the fatal cause could have ever been forever terminated, according to its brightest visions, in that same hour, the traces of the premature anxiety, self-reproach, and disappointment it had occasioned him would have remained upon his features to the hour of his death." Unquote. So we get a pretty disastrous picture of what this case is doing to Richard, which is really just too bad. It's really wearing on Richard as it did the other jarndice that was involved heavily in the case. And the big surprise is revealed, the thing that Ada had been hiding from Esther. Richard and Ada had been married for two months already, and Ada had not told Esther. And... She says, I need to stay with him this time. So Esther, being the motherly figure she is, takes Charlie and they go back from... So Esther leaves, of course, London and she leaves Ada there and goes back to Bleak House and Charlie and Esther visit them again in the middle of the night and then go back to Bleak House again, which, you know, is a bit of journeying. It's quite a bit of journeying. So very interesting. She does tell... John Jarnus when she comes home about the marriage and there's this interesting unrest that's being spun out at this point about Esther being the mistress of Bleak House and again this is the point at which I started looking back at the previous scenes with her and John Jarnus and kind of found the unrest there too so I would look at those scenes they're very interesting very notable to go over as well Chapter 52, Obstinacy. Alright, so Woodcourt is sent to Bleak House by Phil, who is George's assistant, to entreat John Jarndyce and Esther's help. They all three, Woodcourt, John Jarndyce, and Esther, visit George in prison. George is completely hopeless. He will not even get a lawyer. Essentially, he says, the truth is that I was at Tolkienhorn's residence the night he died, but I did not kill him. End of story, I don't need a lawyer, which of course is a huge mistake in this situation. But he has a huge distrust of lawyers because Tolkienhorn, the lawyer, was holding so much above his head, basically his entire adult life. After he's a soldier, that is. Mr. and Mrs. Bagnet arrive at the prison as well to visit him, and they meet John Jarnus and Esther. Another plot convergence, I find these also very notable. 
George saw a figure he remembers like Esther's at Tolkienhorns that night. Meaning, of course, Lady Deadlock? Mrs. Bagnet, at the end of this whole affair, goes to Lincolnshire to find George's mother. He says he has no family, blah blah blah, he does. And Mrs. Bagnet is on a mission to go find them so that they can defend him. And probably convince him as well. Chapter 53, The Track. Alright, so this is Tolkienhorn's funeral. And we see it somewhat from the perspective of Sir Leicester Dudlock. It's pomp, circumstance, galore. There's all these rented mourners and rented carriages, etc. Um, Bucket, as he is looking over this mysterious assassination, has received six notes handwritten in the post. He never gets notes in the post, really, and never writes them as well, with Lady Dedlock's name on them. And my question is, isn't Mademoiselle Hortense? That's, of course, my most obvious guess. Probably not, but <laughs> we'll see. Um, and there's this interesting part where Sir Leicester Dedlock is meeting with Bucket very regularly as he's trying to solve this case, and he says, I will spare no expense to catch the murderer. And it's that, you know, dramatic irony that we know that maybe the murderer was his wife and he's sparing no expense on Bucket's behalf to, and Tolkienhorn's behalf essentially, to figure out if his wife was the murderer or not. It's very ironic. Mrs. Bucket was also out during Tolkienhorn's murder though, at what we figure out as Bucket goes home, he realizes, wait, my wife was also out on a walk supposedly that night. So there's all these like sort of flimsy slash false uh, conspicuous culprits for the murder. And there's also a very strange and semi-notable conversation with a Mercury between Bucket and his Mercury at home. And his Mercury is very tall and Bucket keeps noting, oh, that's, you're really tall, aren't you? How tall are you? And Bucket's, er, and the Mercury says 6'3". And it's a, just a strange, bizarre conversation. You kind of get a feeling for not only Bucket's relationship with his wife and with other people, and there's a lot we could talk about with his wife, actually, which we might get to in the next episode on Thursday. But it's, just a fascinating character study and he's really a character that stands out in this narrative almost like skimple in some respects all right that is the end of serial 16 again this has been so much fun thank you so much for your time and your attention today and i hope you enjoyed this episode and we will see you for the informal version of bleak house serials 13 through 16 on thursday if you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.